Welcome to Awesome Movie Year, the podcast where we take a look back at an awesome year for movies, which is every year. My name is Josh Bell, film critic and writer, and I'm joined by my co-host. I'm Jason Harris, filmmaker, comedian, and I'm doing this podcast voluntarily while Josh is here because of a court order. It's so true. It's a little known fact that courts sometimes order you to do a podcast. Mm-hmm. Community service. Some people, you know, pick up garbage on the highway. Josh, you tell people about movies on a podcast. I do. And what a community service it is that we do here at Awesome Movie Year. <laughs> we are talking about the films of 1975 in this season, and we are here at the Best Picture winner from the Academy Awards, and that is One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, featuring some voluntarily committed patients at a mental ward, directed by Milos Forman and based on the novel by Ken Kesey who was inspired by his own experiences working on a mental ward in uh, the 1950s and 60s, the novel from 1962, the movie set in 1963, featuring what an amazing cast in this film, and so many of them in either their first role or one of their first roles. It's really astounding. It's uh, You get to see all these heavy hitters right away and doing some things you don't see them often do after this. Right. I mean, Danny DeVito, Brad Dourif, Christopher Lloyd, all of these people, Brad Dourif and Christopher Lloyd making their debuts really early in their careers and just amazing. Of course, Jack Nicholson is the star of this. Louise Fletcher uh, as the famous Nurse Ratched, both of whom won Oscars for this movie. And um, yeah, it's just the the acting here. Uh, that was that was my takeaway this time. So hey, Josh. Amazing. Yeah, I agree with you. But, um, you know, you mentioned those awards. This is only the second of three movies to win the big five picture, director, actor, actress, screenplay. Yeah, I I don't know how we determined that those were the big five and there had to be a big five. And I always think it would be more like the the big four or there's the other uh, achievement. I think that wasn't one of the most recent uh, Oscar winners did this where you they won all of the the four acting awards or whatever i feel like there's a a big whatever if you just want to come up with a statistic that sounds impressive i know but these are considered the big five right and uh i don't know why either josh i mean this year everything everywhere all at once won basically everything it was nominated for right right um but what was the first movie and the last movie josh to win those Well, I believe this was on Wikipedia, so I saw it was it happened one night before this and the silence of the lambs afterwards. Yes, Wikipedia. Yes. (laughs) This is uh, (laughs) this is the community service that we're doing is reading Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. This movie not only was uh, a major Oscar winner of those those big five, as Jason mentioned, it was nominated for nine Oscars total. The other four that it did not win were Best Supporting Actor for Brad Dourif, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, and Best Original Score. In addition to all of that, it was hugely successful at the box office. We've talked about this a bunch with older years, the idea of the kind of movie that can be a box office success. This movie grossed $163.3 million on its budget of between three and $4.4 million. There's this range here for whatever reason, but either way, not only is that a massive hit in just in relation to the budget and for the movie itself, but it was the second highest grossing movie of 1975. This movie. All right. Good. Way to go. I'm happy about that. And of course, Nicholson uh, smartly 
as I imagine he often did, took a lower salary, even though he was being paid a lot to get a piece of the profits, baby. Very smart. But I'm just saying, can you imagine a movie like this being the number two movie at the box office in the last like 20 years even? It's crazy. I could if um, Tony Stark and Peter Parker and Miles Morales and... Natasha, the Black uh, Widow, they were all in a mental institution. I could imagine that, Josh, but that would be the only way. Yeah, they tried that with New Mutants, where the superheroes are <laughs> a mental institution. It didn't do very well. But See, I couldn't even imagine it that way because <laughs> I, got, I don't know. What do you want from me, Josh? Right. I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, it, it's just, yeah, it's it's crazy. And this is a year, of course, as we talked about in our you know, season premiere that Jaws was the number one movie at the box office and kicked off this era of the blockbuster. And that's the kind of movie that we think of as a box office champion. But still, you know, right behind it was a movie like this that represents a different kind of uh, success at the box office. So I just found yeah. that interesting. Although there is a fishing scene here, Josh. So could we have had the crossover? That's uh, that's the question. Jaws versus R.P. McMurphy. Yeah, why not? So. Uh, Josh, uh, we might have mentioned this on our Dog Day Afternoon episode. Cuckoo's Nest won Best Picture, beating out Barry Lyndon, Dog Day Afternoon, Jaws, and Nashville. I'm telling you, 1975, all heaters, baby. Yeah, that is a, an amazing lineup of, of Best Picture nominees that we have mentioned multiple times in our Dog Day Afternoon episode, and I believe in our Jaws episode, too. But it's worth mentioning again, because it is pretty amazing. And uh, if we didn't mention the directors, Milos Forman won beating Fellini for Amacord, Kubrick for Barry Lyndon, Lumet for Dog Day Afternoon, and Altman for Nashville. Another just murderer's row right yeah, there, Yeah, right? that's a list of like five of the greatest filmmakers of all time. <laughs> Pretty good. Yes. Pretty good stuff. Indeed. Um, this movie won a bunch of other awards, including six BAFTAs and six Golden Globes. I don't know if you had any other awards noted down that you wanted to mention about this, but it's a lot. Yeah, it's got a lot of awards. That's all you need to know. All right. Fair enough. That's good enough. I do want to say, because we've mentioned the supporting actor uh, twice, Chris Sarandon for Dog Day and Brad Dourif. Also, Burgess Meredith for Days of the Locust, Jack Warden for Shampoo, all lo losing to George Burns in The Sunshine Boys. Yeah, and see, that's at least one that I've not heard of and, and a couple that I haven't seen there. So that's... You've never heard of The Sunshine Boys? <laughs> I have, although I have not seen it. But, yeah. Uh, that Burgess Meredith film, that I, I'm, I'm not familiar with that one. The Day of the Locust? Yeah, I've been, I know, you know, maybe I have heard of it, but I've not seen that one either. So, um, Josh, everybody knows it's a 1975 American satirical historical drama film directed by John Schlesinger and starring Donald Sutherland, Karen Black, William Atherton, Burgess Meredith, Richard Dysart, John Hillerman and Geraldine Page set in Hollywood, California, just before. Oh, I lost the link. <laughs> Jason, <laughs> proving again his skills at reading Wikipedia. <laughs> I mean, I guess we should just say Louise Fletcher. Beat Isabella Johnny uh, and Margaret Glenda Jackson and Carol Kane. Also, a, a, a nice, uh, talented group yeah. of actors. There. So much, so much talent and so many amazing movies in this year, as we keep uh, noting down as well. Jason seems to think this might be the best year ever for movies. I do think that. I think an argument could easily be made looking what we're going through and looking what we're not covering. It's just like, what a wealth of. Uh, I mean, and this isn't a real surprise, right? It's the mid 70s. New Hollywood's in full effect. And um, you're seeing the benefits. We're all reaping the benefits with great movie after great movie here. Yeah, I think the 70s in general 
it's uh, often made the case that that's the greatest decade with all the 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 changes in Hollywood, the new Hollywood movement, as you're as you're saying, and this is maybe the height of that, and uh, we're enjoying going through it. So seven the seventies for America, I think you might say the sixties for France, right? And, right. Um, yeah. That that kind of as, as that started in France and in Europe, it moves to the U.S. later on. Um, as we, you know, and we talked about that in our 1967 season as it was sort of making its way here. Yeah, so go back and listen to all those episodes. Please do. <laughs> so in addition to Ken Kesey's novel, this was also a Broadway production, a very successful one starting in 1963. And Danny DeVito, in fact, was uh, a cast member of the stage version that was carried over to this version, although I think he might be the only one. And you had mentioned that Kesey had worked on uh, in a mental hospital. These This took place at the actual Oregon State Hospital. Uh, is that the one that he worked at? Uh, it may, I think so, or it was the one at least where he set the book then, and that they, they shot the movie there in the actual location. So, yeah, it's very, uh, you know, has a very authentic feel, obviously, from, from those things. Thanks, Josh. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> so interestingly, this was well-reviewed, but a lot of what I found here from the major critics was pretty mixed, that they were positive about certain aspects, but um, less so about maybe the idea of this commenting on larger social issues beyond just the people, the characters in the mental institution. So Roger Ebert said... Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a film so good in so many of its parts that there's a temptation to forgive it when it goes wrong. But it does go wrong, insisting on making larger points than its story really should carry, so that at the end, the human qualities of the characters get lost in the significance of it all. And yet, there are those moments of brilliance. It's a lot easier to make noble points about fighting the establishment, about refusing to surrender yourself to the system, than it is to closely observe the ways real people behave when they're placed in an environment like a mental institution. That sort of observation, when it's allowed to happen, is what's best about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Interesting. Um, I look at like Nicholson around this time and, you know, Last Detail in 73, which I don't think you've seen, right? I have seen that. Um, I think maybe around the time that that Richard Linklater like pseudo sequel was released. But yeah, that's a good one. Right. It is a good one, Hal Ashby. And also, you know, he's playing like uh, kind of a Navy guard who does have, again, these kind of like anti-establishment vibes. But he's transporting a prisoner who could be a McMurphy uh, peer. So it's interesting right. that he moved from uh, playing the authority to playing the anti-authority in that one. Right. Yeah. Randy Quaid playing that character in The Last Detail, who is uh, sort of a loose cannon screw up kind of person so yeah there's definitely parallels there vincent canby in the new york times had some similar objections and praise he said one flew over the cuckoo's nest is a comedy that can't quite support its tragic conclusion which is too schematic to be honestly moving but it is acted with such a sense of life that one responds to its demonstration of humanity if not to its programmed metaphors one flew over the cuckoo's nest is at its best when Mr. Foreman is exercising his talents as a director of exuberant comedy that challenges preconceived notions of good taste. I suspect that we are meant to make connections between Randall's confrontation with the oppressive Nurse Ratched and the political turmoil in this country in the 1960s. The connection doesn't work, 
Even granting the artist his license, America is much too big and various to be satisfactorily reduced to the dimensions of one mental ward in a movie like this. Yeah, I mean, I thought about that, the whole Vietnam situation. Situation. That's how you would spin it politically. You know, we're in a situation in Vietnam or something. Like yes. That. I don't think they ever called it a war, right? Didn't they call it like a political action or something along yeah, those lines? Yeah, I mean, that's so, we've never had an actual war to, technically quote, since, unquote, war, since right. World War II. Yeah. yeah. That's a whole other um, podcast. But um, no, because we've talked about this with films from other countries, you know, um, in the 50s after World War II, and you look at like, you know, the Italian and the German films. And you could definitely feel that kind of, um, you know, malaise or lack of faith and um, joy going on here from the Vietnam bleeding is in full effect here, I'd say. Yeah. And I mean, it was interesting to me to see this because I think we do think of this movie now as exactly what you're talking about as this sort of post-Vietnam reflection of the turmoil there but it was interesting to, to to me to read here in 1975 these critics who are kind of like oh this is all old hat at this point already so um especially here uh ad murphy in variety said despite it seeming more like a fabulous remake of a dated story rather than the first film version of a noted book and play one flew over the cuckoo's nest is brilliant cinema theater Jack Nicholson stars in an outstanding characterization of Ken Kesey's asylum antihero, McMurphy, and Milos Forman's direction of a superbly cast film is equally meritorious. What used to be theater of the absurd has become, via and after JFK, The Beatles, Vietnam, Youthful Rebellion, Watergate, etc., almost conventional cliché storytelling. Thus, this long-delayed film emerges with a dual impact. To those under the age of, say, 25, it will be a theatrically powerful but not especially challenging ensemble showpiece, which poses the now familiar question, who is insane, the keepers or the kept? To those over that age barrier, it is intellectual nostalgia, a revisitation of the days when causes didn't choke from mace attacks. Um, I'm going to talk about that cast there because... Um... So when they got Nicholson, the other names they were looking at were uh, so. So this is what I understand, Josh. Yeah. Kirk Douglas played McMurphy on Broadway. Correct. And bought and bought the rights to it and took about 10 years to try to make it, but couldn't get it over the finish line. He sold the rights to his son, Michael Douglas. Have you heard of him, Josh? I have indeed. Yes. OK. And of course, Saul Zanz, who we've talked about legendary producer, but also the man who sued John Fogarty for plagiarizing his own own music. Booze ants. Um, anyway, Josh, they were looking at Gene Hackman, James Caan, Marlon Brando, and uh, Burt Reynolds, Smokey himself. Uh, actually, he's the bandit, Josh, just in case you didn't know. But when they, uh, when, they got, um, when they got Nicholson, he was so busy, they had to push the shoot for six months, with my, which Michael Douglas said was like a blessing in disguise because that's how they were able to line up the ensemble um, and just basically get whoever they wanted for those roles. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. And and it's not like it was. They had to wait to get all these famous people, right? Of course, now they are many of them to us, but they weren't really at the time. So it was it was waiting for Nicholson, but kind of lucking into these people who were basically unknown at the time and turned out to be perfect for it. 
Do you think, I mean, it's a, it is definitely one of the signature Nicholson roles of those names I mentioned. They all seem, I know they're legends, but they seem like, I don't know how they would have fit Hackman, Khan, Brando, Reynolds, you know? I mean, I feel like Hackman could have done a really good job with it. Um, you know, as we've discussed, I'm not particularly a fan of Marlon Brando. Um, and I don't know, especially by 1975, I'm not sure that he would have had the right energy for this. But, um, you know, it, it would have been interesting to see uh, one of those other people. I feel like Hackman definitely could have. Could have. I mean, he's a, he's a legend, one of the all time greats. But um, there's a different type of coolness to Jack than there is to Gene Hackman. Right. And then that way I was thinking maybe James Conn would have been the one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, look, we, we could admit they got the right guy here, huh, Josh? Oh, yeah, of course they did. And I mean, I think that coolness that you mentioned is a, it is a key part of the character because he has to have that allure that he comes into this place and all the other inmate or uh, patients, they're not mostly inmates, look up to him and want to follow him. And you have to understand that you have to see the, the charisma that he has and the swagger that he has. And Nicholson obviously just innately has all that. Agreed. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you think about the idea of the social commentary here that these reviews are talking about? Well, I think what I think is, you know, they're probably right in the way um, that they're saying like, oh, there were so many movies commenting on what was going on in the real world at the time. But when we came to this movie, which was probably the 90s because it was always on TV and now revisiting it, the ones that live on are the best of the bunch. So we've kind of like cream rises to the top. We haven't been weighed down with all of them. Right. I thought that was interesting because, uh, again, I feel like you're absolutely right. That is the reputation that this movie has as one of those major documents of this time period. And it was interesting to me to see in the time period where that was the main thing about it that was kind of being dismissed and that the critical praise was really focused more just on the characters, the personalities, which is, you know, also something that is highly regarded now. But I feel like the the combination is what has made it this enduring classic or what people consider for that. I do think it a little bit underestimates Milos Forman with um, that type of commentary, though, because, you know, we know he's always been a political filmmaker talking about uh, the issues of the day. I found this quote from him. To me, the story was not just literature, but real life. The life I lived in Czechoslovakia from my birth in 1932 until 1968. Communist Party was my nurse ratchet telling me what I could and could not do, what I was or was not allowed to say, where I was and was not allowed to go, even who I was and who I was not. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. And and he came out of the Czech New Wave. And of course, that was a very politically charged filmmaking movement. And it makes sense that he would bring some of that sensibility to his work in the U.S. So I'm not saying that it's not there. But it's interesting that that focus was kind of um, pulled away from it. And, and honestly, for me, I, I kind of agree in the sense that I feel like when it becomes more, as I think Ebert said, or one of the reviews says they're schematic toward the end, I didn't buy into it as much. And I liked it more with this sort of little hangout vibe. Josh, I kind of agree with you because in my uh, letterbox review, go for Jason. That's where you can find me on Letterboxd, Josh. I said that um, Act 3, while it hits the right emotional notes, if you actually think about the actions of it, I don't think really makes sense. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm with you too. And I didn't remember every detail of the plot watching this again. And as it got towards those big kind of melodramatic moments in that final act, I was like, oh, is this what happens? Oh, this is what it's going to, this is what they're going to do. It definitely felt like it was too on the nose or pushing a little too hard or whatever. And I don't know, you know, maybe Ken Kesey witnessed things like this when he was working in a real mental institution and it seems overdone, even though it's realistic. I don't know. But just that was to me the way it came across. Yeah. The last two beats especially were the ones for me. Yes, I agree. And I'm sure we'll uh, get those more into more detail on those. So Jason, you said you, you watched this in the nineties on TV first. You know, what's funny is like, I remember seeing this and thinking to myself, this is like the greatest movie I've ever seen. And then I think I saw it again. And then I watched it this time and I'm like, I don't remember like half of this stuff. So I'm wondering if I just saw bits and pieces or if I saw the whole movie and forgot that much. It's really weird. Yeah. Do do you still feel like it's the greatest movie you've ever seen? No, I don't even think it's the best movie of this year, but I do think it's a very good movie still. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I did not see it in the 90s or or in any of that, the those earlier years on TV. I watched it in uh, 2011, I think it was, according to my letterbox, when it would have just been something that, you know, it's a major film and I rented it one time. I thought I ought to see it and I did. And I think I liked it fine then and I liked it fine now. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I actually went in after watching this and uh, adjusted my 1975 top 10 list and moved this further down and uh, had moved Dog Day Afternoon further up. But that's a win for me. Yes, yeah, exactly. You know, as the Dog Day advocate here. You are. Well, and it's a great that's a great movie. And that was one where watching it the second time I, I had liked it before, but I liked it even more. And this is good. I mean, I don't want to say that this movie isn't good, but I did feel like there were aspects of it that didn't work as well for me this time. Um, Dave, had you seen this before? I watched it last year for the first time. And like Jason, I felt like I had seen it before, but I couldn't quite remember. And then when I watched it, I was like, yeah, I don't think so. I think this is the first time. But uh, yeah, I, I mean, I like it. I agree with a lot of those criticisms that uh, you were reading there, Josh. Like, you know, it, it does feel a little, uh, you know, empty. It's just kind of like just a fun hangout in a weird situation. But like, you know, it's basically the performances are are key here. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure we'll get more into all of that when we come back and talk more of our general thoughts on One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about Best Picture Oscar winner One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And we keep mentioning the performances. Jason, is there a smaller performance that stood out to you more this time? I loved I love Danny DeVito. He's yeah. so great in this. Um, and I think like he is just well, I had read that none of the uh, actors were breaking character between takes. And, you know, Nicholson was like uh, a little freaked out about that at the beginning. But I think this side of DeVito, which we don't get to see as he becomes like a bigger and bigger comedy star, really showcases uh, his abilities dramatically. And I think it would have been really fun to see more of that from him throughout his career. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is a very different kind of role, not just that he's typically more of a comedy actor, but he's a very big performer. And in this movie, he's so subdued. I mean, his character barely speaks. He's this guy who can kind of barely articulate himself and and sometimes just says the same little one or two word uh, thing over and over again. I mean, it's almost like 
I mean, between that and the way he looked so much different when he was so much younger, you, you might not even realize that it was him if you're watching this movie and you didn't see his name in the credits or whatever, or didn't realize that he was in it, I think. And that's it's an amazingly different performance. Yeah, he played Martini. And, you know, whereas someone like Christopher Lloyd, who played Tabor, does have like a high voltage uh, performance, uh, I guess, no pun intended <laughs> because of the electro shock sequences. But um, but, you know, Christopher Lloyd, we, we usually recognize him for his high energy and like um, in like these very like whimsical, endearing ways. And here he's a violent, you know, type guy who's like really on edge. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's a different context. And he's also known more, I think, for comedy. But at the same time, you see this movie and you you recognize that's Christopher Lloyd doing kind of the Christopher Lloyd thing in this particular context. And he's really good, too. I mean, all of them. I don't think there's a bad performance in this movie. Right. I think. Uh, uh, did you have a favorite of the smaller performances, Josh? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I like both of those that, that we just mentioned. Um, I, I feel like they're they're all so good and they're all so good in their own little different ways um i i was happy to see uh Vin vincent schiavelli and uh michael berryman who are two of these actors who have this very like distinctive uh facial look um uh, vincent schiavelli has a bigger part in this as uh he's he's one of the the guys in the in the group and he doesn't do a whole lot but i i just like his his sort of like off kilter presence um but yeah, I mean, so even someone like that who only has a handful of lines, I feel like adds to the whole immersion that you have in this place. And it feels real. It feels like the kind of people you would encounter in this kind of strange environment. And of course, seeing Scatman Crothers as the night guard was fun, especially since we had done our uh, our Shining episode and we know about the interaction between Jack and the Scatman. Indeed. Uh, years later. Although I will say, not that he's bad, he's fine, but that character was one of the things that kind of bugged me about the movie this time, because he basically comes out of nowhere. We've never seen him before, and he suddenly becomes a central, important figure in this whole sequence where McMurphy bribes him so that he can let his girlfriends in and, and have this party and potentially escape, and, you know, he... Scatman Crothers character gets all worked up about, oh, my God, you're going to get me fired. You're going to get me fired. It's like, well, we don't know who this is or, or care. Right. Right. He's just he hasn't been in the movie before. I mean, I think, Josh, you know, look, you know, we've mentioned Jack Nicholson, obviously. But like if we're really going to talk about acting here, like Louise Fletcher knocked me out of this performance. I mean, she's playing against all these great actors and a lot of them for their roles uh, require big performances or like, let's say uh, vol vol voluminous performances. Right. And she plays that nurse ratchet so coolly the whole time. And it is so effective. And I, it was so good that I was like, I'm sympathetic towards her, not saying she didn't do bad things too, but like, you know, now we got like the Ryan Murphy spinoff where ratchet is this awful human being. And I didn't get that from her. I got that maybe she was misguided, but I did think, and I know that Fletcher said that she believed that uh, Ratched cared about the patients. Right. I think that's absolutely true. And if you haven't seen this movie and you're just aware of sort of its pop culture reputation, you might expect that she's this insane villain or whatever. And, and she's not. And not only is it, like you said, Louise Fletcher's performance 
is very subdued. She's not screaming and yelling and doing all of this over the top evil stuff at all. Even when she does something that's that's particularly vile, it's done in this quiet, assured, subdued way. But I, I, I agree with you. It felt like almost everything that she does in the movie that is in opposition to McMurphy and the other patients who were meant to sympathize with, she's doing because she believes it is the best for them. It is the way to help them. And like you said, she might be misguided. She might be wrong about that, but she's not doing it because she wants to be mean to them or because she's a sadistic person or something, which I think is the characterization that has gone out into pop culture. Right. I don't know why it went that way. Do you, do you, what do you think? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe because even at the time that people were conceiving of it that way, I mean, that, that quote that you read from Milos Forman, he clearly sees her as the villain. If he's using her as an analog for the oppressive government that he had to experience in his youth. And so maybe it was just the way that she was talked about. I, I don't know exactly, but um, that that has really like taken hold. Yeah, maybe it's just that um, we've dealt with uh, so many more horrible people since then. Not to say there weren't horrible people before, but she just kind of like flies under the radar now. Yeah, I, I don't know. But I mean, I definitely sympathize with her. And I felt like not only that, hey, she's trying to do what she thinks is the right thing, even if it's not the right thing. But some of the things that she did that the, the characters that the patients object to, I thought, no, this does make sense. Like she's rationing the cigarettes because she doesn't want them to lose all the cigarettes in gambling with McMurphy. Like, well, these people have impulse problems. They need to be, that's why they're there. You know, things like that, that are things that the characters are rallying against are to me, maybe sensible decisions. And that's not everything. If we want to get in toward the ending, there's some really bad stuff there, (laughs) but I think so. The way she treats Billy after Billy sleeps with the prostitute and, you know, um, she, She's uh, old friends with Billy's mom, and she knows that that's the one thing that'll trigger him. And she kind of really grinds that into him. Uh, spoiler alert, which is the uh, inciting incident for his suicide. Death. Right. And that was the only moment to me in the movie where it seemed like she was doing something purely to be mean, that she was angry, that these people had so brazenly broken all the rules and had this giant party and trashed the whole place that she was just going to like dig in to Billy. And like you said, find the one thing that triggers him. And not that she wanted him to kill himself, but she does want to upset him, I think. And that was the only moment. You don't think that that was, I mean, there was more to that in the idea of like, she was doing what she felt she needed to do to take all the power back. I mean, maybe, but it also seemed to me to be something where it is so obvious that his mental health problems are tied up in his mother and that she's a smart person and she understands, I think, the mental health issues that these people have. She has to know that by saying that, it's going to send him into this crisis. And again, maybe she doesn't want him to kill himself, but she wants him to be back in this sort of vulnerable state so she can reassert control. And Josh, we're not always experts, when it, but when it comes to mental health issues stemming from our mothers, hey, hey oh. you're at the right podcast, All people. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that this movie, yeah. it just comes from like a very punk rock point of view of like all authority is bad, no matter what, black and white, down the line, just authority bad. Yeah, I mean, that's at least the point of view of, of McMurphy. Mm-hmm. But 
I, I don't know. I feel like even despite what you, you know, what, what Milos Forman said there in that quote, Jason, I feel like this movie is not entirely just that perspective, that it is showing how some structure and constraints can be beneficial for people like this who have these mental illnesses. And as you mentioned, most of them are checked in voluntarily. But, Josh, when McMurphy commandeers the bus and takes them all fishing, right? Like, you do see this level of confidence and joy that they all gain from doing something together without any authority that they would never experience inside the uh, confines of the hospital. Yeah, that's true. But on the other hand, the other thing that happens is that McMurphy kind of just comes in and becomes their new authority figure. I mean, he may not be controlling in the way that Nurse Ratchet is, but he's clearly the leader that they're looking up to, that they're following in the absence of Nurse Ratchet. And, you know, he's the one like he steals the bus and and it, he, no one else knows that he's going to do that. Right. He gets on the bus. He closes the door. He says, hey, we're going fishing. And they all just go along with him. So I think there's still a level of of needing someone to lead them. I like that sequence, though, because I think getting away from the hospital um, was a real refresher to see them out doing something else. And it really kind of zoned in on the focus of what their lives were like at the hospital afterwards. Yeah. I mean, it was weird. I guess it's a little jarring and I hadn't remembered particularly about that sequence because this seems like a movie that is so tied up in its particular location to suddenly be out of that location for an extended period of time. But you're right. I think it provides an interesting contrast um, because we then we go back to the hospital and then we never leave again. Right. So, Josh, we probably should talk about the chief. Yes. Did you have something to say about him? <laughs> no, neither of us should talk about it now. So. Uh, yeah, Will, uh, Will Sampson uh, is the actor who played the chief who had not acted before, was kind of a, a discovery. He'd worked uh, as a, a rodeo cowboy and... Yeah, he's great. I mean, one of the things that uh, I haven't read this book, I don't think any of us have read this book, but apparently it is told from the perspective of the chief, the actual, the novel is written in first person. And so he's this point of view character and we don't quite get that here, um, but he clearly is an important character and we start to realize his importance as the movie goes on. You know, he's almost a little bit in the background at first. He's supposedly a deaf mute. He just kind of stands around and pushes this broom or whatever. And it seems like he's maybe one of these background characters, along with some of these other guys who are almost catatonic or don't really speak. And then gradually McMurphy really makes this effort to befriend him and, and they have a connection and he learns that the chief is faking being a deaf mute. And, and the chief is the one ultimately who flies over the cuckoo's nest. Right. He does. Um, so that sequence at the end, I know, is one of the most famous in film history. And like I said, is emotionally resonant. But I don't think if you actually think about it, it makes much sense, at least not to me. Yeah. Um, and so spoilers again. Um, so McMurphy, after Billy commits suicide, tries to kill Nurse Ratchet by choking her and almost does it. And then some of the orderlies are able to break it up. And so they lobotomized McMurphy, which I didn't know if you could just do that for attacking the nurse or whatnot, right. especially given that it was, I'm not going to say provoked, but it wasn't unprovoked given the circumstances. Well, yeah. And even if it's like, you know, that's not okay, it's not necessarily because he has a particular mental illness that would be cured by a lobotomy. He's just a violent guy. 
Yeah. Uh, I don't think uh, lobotomies cure mental illnesses, Josh. They vegetate. You, right. They? But I mean, in, in theory, the goal of a lobotomy, you know, what they were attempting to do with those at the time is not even, I don't think, I mean, I guess it does kind of put you in this passive state and that will prevent someone from being violent. But yeah, it did seem a little to me also like abrupt and the fact that they could just do that without any sort of process or whatever, or that they would do it for something like that, that wasn't a particular mental health diagnosis. And I think lobotomies were still performed, but I think even by the early sixties, they were, you know, kind of going out of, going out of style or, you know, people were, it was frowned upon, you know, people were realizing that they weren't beneficial for anyone. Right. So they lobotomized McMurphy and, you know, the chief, uh, they all think McMurphy has either escaped or is up on another level of the ward, whatever it is. And then he comes back and the chief goes, I knew you wouldn't escape without me and I'm ready to go. And he knows he recognizes that McMurphy is lobotomized. He um, suffocates him. Right. And he picks up that hydrotherapy station, which McMurphy, which no human really could pick up. But the chief is super strong. He throws it through the window because we saw McMurphy try to pick it up earlier in the movie. And he breaks the window and runs and escapes. And you see all the other patients wake up. He did it. He did it. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, Josh, it's supposed to imply that they think McMurphy escaped, correct? Oh, I didn't think that. But I mean, I guess they all just think the chief escaped. I assume that they kind of see what happens, but but maybe not. I I never thought that. But maybe maybe are you you're meant to think that I'm not sure. So, Dave, how did you take that? Yeah, I, I didn't uh, think that either. But, you know, now that you mention it, that does seem plausible that that's kind of what we're meant to think that all the other inmates think. Yeah, that's how I that's how I thought I took it. Maybe I'm completely wrong. No, I think it's a valid way to look at it, even if yeah. we didn't see it that way either. So, I mean, what so what is your specific sort of well, I mean, with that whole sequence, if I if that's the way it is supposed to be meant to take in, um, I mean, at some point they would realize McMurphy's just lying there on his bed dead, right? So the joy of that moment would be very fleeting. Right. And I mean, I think if you if you interpret it that way, then that's kind of the point, that it's this false elation that they have when right. McMurphy, in fact, has been completely beaten and destroyed by the system that he was trying to rebel against. So I feel like thematically that that would work. Right. And I guess, you know, talking it out loud, you know, saying it that way, even if they do realize or will soon realize that McMurphy is dead, the fact that that spirit has kind of propelled the chief to do it is something they can hold on to. Right. I feel like my concerns with this scene were more just about, like we were saying about the lobotomy, and then on top of that, the chief decides, well, you know, he says something like, you you are going to escape or whatever, like he needs to escape the the misery of living that way. And so he smothers him and suffocates him. And it just all felt like harsher than it needed to be to make the point that the movie was trying to make. And it just felt like it was between that and then the suicide of Billy beforehand, it just seemed like it was going further into this melodramatic territory and kind of beating you over the head with these ideas that we understand. And I feel like it's almost more powerful if we don't have suicides and murders and whatever, because life in this institution is is hard enough as it is just on this sort of mundane level. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, and I think it's fair to look at it the other way that they, you know, at some point something big would happen. Someone would kill themselves or whatever it is. So I think either way it works. Yeah. But I don't know. Those those were kind of the things where to me, I was like, all right, I don't know if I'm fully on board with everything that's going on here. But still, the characters were all really fascinating and distinctive and the performances are all so good. And I did find Nurse Ratchet, as we were talking about, kind of more fascinating even this time, because there are layers to that performance that I think is is just this stereo people think of as this stereotypical villain. So there's a lot of good stuff here. But I think overall, it didn't wow me in the way that it has so many people for all this time. Well, Josh, should we rate it out of uh, five fishing jaunts that have not been officially chartered? Um, that is a very specific. Uh, <laughs> let's let's go for it. How would you rate yeah. this? It gets uh, four jaunts on the old fishing boat to me. I uh, still think it's a very good movie. Yeah, I'm going to give it three and a half fishing trips. I also think it's a very good movie, but I, I feel like I had enough reservations this time that I didn't love it. Dave, how would you rate this? I'm going four. Uh, it's a soft four, though. I, I think there's some issues. But it, overall, though, it's still it's it's a great movie. Yeah, I mean, well, I agree. Interesting. I agree. It is it is really good. I mean, if it's something you haven't seen, it's it's certainly worth experiencing. And there's a lot of great stuff to check out. Word on the street is Dave is a hard four. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but we'll come back in a moment and talk about the legacy of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Welcome back to Awesome Movie Year. In this episode of our season on the films of 1975, we are talking about Best Picture winner One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And... We've talked about already, I think this is the fourth time we've talked about a Jack Nicholson film, and we've also covered Milos Forman in the past with Amadeus. So there's so much else in, in this film in terms of looking at its future that I think we're going to bypass those two big figures and talk about some of the other stuff here. Sure. I would say, uh, is this the fourth? Uh, what, what were the other ones? Yeah, Batman we talked. And ba- then, uh, yeah, uh, A Few Good Men and... What's the other one? Uh, the Shining. The Shining. There we go. Yeah. So. so those three we've all we've talked about. I mean, three major Nicholson performances from different yeah. eras. And so I don't need to recommend Five Easy Pieces or About Schmidt right now. We've probably done that many times. I think we have, time. but yeah. but I co-sign those recommendations. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. And you know, Milos, obviously, we talked about with uh, Amadeus. I believe didn't he win two Oscars for Best uh, Director? Amadeus and this. Yeah, I believe you're right. And um, you know, not not a prolific director, but certainly a major director, both from the the Czech New Wave era and then into his Hollywood career. So, Josh, the screenwriters, uh, Lawrence Hubin, I don't think I'm pronouncing that right, who wrote the original draft from the Kesey novel, and then uh, Bo Goldman, who took over, both won Oscars here. But Goldman uh, has been a legendary screenwriter. Uh, he wrote Scent of a Woman and won another Oscar for Melvin and Howard. Yeah, that's uh, Scent of a Woman we, we keep ending up mentioning this season. <laughs> and I just wanted to say, Josh, uh, we mentioned the play. The play, I think the book was by Dale Wasserman. Yes. And uh, I mean, if we wanted to to kind of touch on the play a bit, that is a continued success as well. I mean, it's uh, when it was revived in 2001, it won a Tony for the best revival of a play and was also nominated for best lead actor in a play for Gary Sinise, who played McMurphy in that version. And it continues to be revived 
periodically, including most recently in 2022 in a version in Australia. So has as much, it seems like, you know, the play, the novel and the film all have this real long lasting existence. Josh, we mentioned the legendary uh, director of photography, Haskell Wexler, in our in the Heat of the Night episode. Um, but what's interesting is he was the ph- the photographer here. He got fired late into the shoot. Bill Butler, who we talked about on Jaws, took over, and they were again uh, both nominated for the uh, best cinematography hmm. Oscar. There, yeah, Josh. that's interesting that that kind of thing where one of them was fired and replaced, and yet both they both of them end up with an Oscar nomination. I don't know if something like that has happened before. I don't either, Josh. I don't either. All right. Um, as we said, this was, you know, debuts notably for a couple of these major actors. Brad Dourif, who was nominated for an Oscar here. This was his first film role. He is an incredibly prolific character actor, um, mainly in genre type stuff. I think we probably talked about him in our Lord of the Rings episode as Wormtongue. And I, of course, know him and many, many people know him as the beloved voice of Chucky in the Child's Play movies which is, I guess at this point, really his signature role, even though he's mostly not on screen for that. But um, that that has kind of become his his the defining thing of his career. Well, yeah, he's got a lot of these, you know, kind of cult fun things like that. So good for him. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I heartily recommend the check. He Rose. did win the Golden Globe and the BAFTA while he did not win the Oscar. And of course, Josh, he was on Deadwood. Yeah. Um, Christopher Lloyd also made his debut here. Another incredibly prolific actor and mainly known for comedy, as I was saying before, you know, the Back to the Future movies, of course, Taxi, the TV series. I love him in the Addams Family movies. And he's great in those. He and Brad Dourif still working like constantly in in smaller films and TV all over the place. I can't believe I didn't work up a Christopher Lloyd impression for this job yeah i feel like marley what are we gonna do i gotta work on it i have to listen to it a little it's, a, it's an all right start there i feel yeah. like uh not quite as strong as some of your other uh impression debuts uh, he, that we've had recently yeah i didn't even consider he has two emmys for taxi josh and of course in some all-time classics eight men out and walk like a man with howie mandel <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that movie yeah i liked it when i was a kid oh okay i have not um Danny DeVito had done a few things before this, but this was also a big breakout role for him, having done the same role in the stage version. Of course, he became a a huge movie star as well as a a director. He was also on Taxi and both, uh, you know. Nardo. That's what he used to say. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Of course, both he and Jack Nicholson played villains in Tim Burton Batman movies. So that's another thing. And. We love that he's on It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, just hanging out with those guys when they were nobodies and decided it would be fun to be on their TV series and uh, a million other things. Dave, aren't you a big fan of Death to Smoochie? Oh, one of the best movies ever. Absolutely. <laughs> I hated it in the theater, but I'll rewatch it. He has a Golden Globe and Emmy for Taxi. Josh, how about him as Herb on The Simpsons as uh, Homer's brother, right? Oh, yeah. Did he just do that once or was that a recurring? I think. I think twice, okay. so the, you know, and of course he and Schwarzenegger twins. I like him in Get Shorty a lot. And um, he produced Out of Sight. You know, he was a very uh, prolific producer with Jersey Films. Uh, I'm interested to see Pool Man, uh, which we might have talked about, which I think is uh, Chris Pine is directing that about mm. a pool man who gets into some type of uh, 
detective shenanigans, if I'm not mistaken. And he's also in that new Taylor Hackford movie, Sniff, which we talked about. Well, yeah, um, I, I agree with you on Get Shorty. That is a great film. And uh, we might have talked about it with uh, John Travolta way back at some point. But what? So is that your Travolta impression now? Where? It's my 70s Travolta. I swear, Miss Ratchet, I was going to tell you. What if Travolta had played this role? How would that have gone instead? I, I think that's how it would go. Yeah. Like, why don't you just give these guys the cigarettes? <laughs> it's not a good impression, but it's an entertaining one. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's uh, that's that's one for the press reel, Josh. Yeah. That's oh, yeah. the quote right there. Yeah. So, I just wanted to get this. Uh, a pool man follows a hapless dreamer and would-be philosopher who spends his days looking after the pools of the Tahitian Tiki apartment block in sunny L.A., when he uncovers the greatest water heist, he does what he can to protect his precious L.A. It sounds like a very strange take on uh, Chinatown. Yeah. Is that is that Chris Pine playing the pool man? Probably. He's starring in it and it's got Jennifer Jason Lee and he co-wrote it, Chris Pine. And Sounds great. Danny, you know, also. Yeah. I look forward to that movie. Yeah. So uh, Louise Fletcher, of course, won the Oscar for this. And she had not done a whole lot. She had been on TV in the 50s and 60s, but had not really done much in film. And of course, this was a breakout for her, although I think she ended up maybe getting a little typecast out of it, but had a long career as a character actor. I remember far before I ever saw this movie that I was a huge fan of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and she had a recurring role on that show. So I was able to kind of get a sense of her away from Nurse Ratched before ever seeing this, but she worked very steadily as well. She died last year, but had a long, long career. Emmy nods for Picket Fences and Joan of Arcadia. Also, some uh, 90s friends will remember her from Cruel Intentions. Oh, God. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's a variety of roles there. That is, Josh. Uh, you know, we got to mention uh, the other fine actors. William Redfield, pretty sad, uh, who played Harding, right? He was um, a beloved and renowned stage actor in New York. And I had read that Dean Brooks, who was the hospital director in real life, who played uh, Spivey, the doctor here um, during filming, was able to diagnose um, Redfield with leukemia. And then like 18 months later, he died. Yeah, this was one of his final roles. And that is sad. I mean, I guess weirdly nice that he was able to get that uh, diagnosis from a doctor slash actor, but definitely sad that uh, that he passed away so soon after this. And then Sidney Lasik uh, or Lasik, uh, who played Cheswick, is really does some good work here, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's very good. And he had a long career as a character actor, died in 2003. And we have to mention Will Sampson, who plays the chief. And like I said, this was he was kind of discovered out of the rodeo and cast in this film. And he he did act, uh, you know, he didn't have a huge acting career, but but was in some big movies, including the outlaw Josie Wales, the White Buffalo, Poltergeist 2, uh, Orca, which we mentioned in our Jaws episode of one of those animal attack movies from this era. He also was a painter and uh, he died in 1987. Hmm. Josh, I think there's a lot of uh, good stuff here and should make you want to watch more Milos Forman movies, even though we've watched a good amount of them. Yeah, I mean, I think I've seen most of his Hollywood movies, but not as many of his early Czech films. And I was going to try to check something, check something Ooh, out nice. um, mm. before this episode that I hadn't seen before and and didn't have a chance to. But I think you rewatched a movie that, that you and I had watched together a long time ago, The Fireman's Ball, which was another I, early uh, Foreman. 
I did. And the reason I chose that one to just, uh, you know, get another look at it was because, um, you know, the humor in this movie and the humor in that movie are often like cited together. So I wanted to see how they related. And um, I guess the absurdity of life is uh, pointed out in both. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't remember it as well. Again, we did see it, but it was quite a while ago. Um, but I think that's something that Foreman was bringing with him to American films from his Czech work as well. Yeah. Well, one thing I read was that, like, you know, they interviewed a lot of directors and Foreman was the only one who laid out literally from beginning to end how he would make the movie. So that might have been what put him over the top. Yeah. Um, I did want to mention just a couple other actors. I mean, there's so many, but I had talked about Vincent Schiavelli, who I think is one of those great screen presences and worked with Milos Forman uh, a few other times. Uh, among his many other credits, Miracle Beach. Mm. And Dave, do you know why that's important? I know you guys have like a thing, right? Like a, a sequel or something? Or what, what is it? Josh, you yeah, we. I, I feel like this is a long running thing here, but uh, yes, uh, we, it's, a, it's definitely every few seasons show. you got to bring it back up. We bring so. it up. We do. Yeah. yeah, we we wrote Miracle Beach too when we were <laughs> sixteen, I guess, on the uh, <laughs> advice of Jason's uh, producer contact, who clearly was not going to hire two 16 year olds to write a sequel. He said, he said ours was very funny, but then he ended up optioning his own that he wrote. Yeah. Wow. And it never was made, but we, uh, we did have to watch miracle beach in order. To well, Josh, there's still time because as you know, I'm currently acting in BattleBots Destructathon with Bill Dwyer, who was the host of BattleBots on comedy central, but also co-starred in uh, ski school two with Dean Cameron, who was the star of Miracle Beach? It's like there we go. It's like six degrees of Kevin Bacon, but with Miracle Beach. Six degrees of Miracle Beach. There you go. Um, and Michael Berryman, also, I I know from as soon as I saw him, it was like, oh, it's the guy from The Hills Have Eyes. I mean, because of his kind of distinctive appearances, he did a lot of that genre stuff. He was in some Rob Zombie movies and uh, just other genre stuff. And I think both of those are guys who, if you don't know their name. As soon as you see their face on screen, it's like, oh, right. It's that, you know, that no one else looks like that. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Ratched, the Ryan Murphy series starring Sarah Paulson as Nurse Ratched as sort of a prequel. And it really like. It, 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 it illustrates such a gross misunderstanding of this film. <laughs> <laughs> on the part of everyone involved. It's really quite amazing uh, to watch that and realize that they have missed every point of what this movie was even about. Ryan Murphy can't hear you. They just delivered another gold-plated truck of money to his house, Josh. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I will say that this is, I think, a rare Ryan Murphy failure in that it was picked up for two seasons by Netflix at the time that it was ordered and the first season premiered in 2020 and uh, no, no word on that second season, allegedly. Josh, I don't know about a rare Ryan Murphy failure. I know he's back uh, in the good graces of Netflix right now, but he had a few misses for them. True. He did. But um, you know, he's had far more hits and uh, whatever Ryan Murphy, but <laughs> it is, I feel like though it is, it is representative of this thing that we were talking about earlier of nurse ratchet as this pop culture figure who is akin to these ridiculous over-the-top villains. I mean, the fact that she was named the fifth greatest villain in American film history on one of these AFI polls behind like Hannibal Lecter and Darth Vader is, I, I, you know, I, right, I feel like such a misunderstanding of what this movie is. 
But yeah, uh, also Hannibal Lecter uh, in that movie is not a villain. So that's a weird thing, too. I mean, I know what he did and everything, but like he's literally helping the protagonist the entire way through. But I think, uh, yeah, I just think maybe Fletcher played this with so many layers that uh, or so differently than people interpreted that she got one by a lot of people. Unless we're idiots and we just misunderstood the whole thing. But I feel like she really brought a a true depth and emotional uh, core to this character. No, I totally agree. And I feel like even if you're less inclined to be forgiving of her and you do see her as kind of a, a villainous figure, there's so much more complexity to her villainy that to put her alongside those almost cartoonish other characters, as memorable as those characters are, I just think it makes no sense. She was... She was the number two female villain on that list behind the Wicked Witch of the West. Mm. <laughs> so well, there might be a time where we can dissect the Wicked Witch's emotional complexities as well. And I, I look forward to that. So uh, anything else about the legacy of this film you want to mention, Jason? I ordered a plain chicken sandwich. <laughs> That's a different, it's a different movie, movie altogether. Yeah. But that was good. You got that one. Keep working on the Christopher Lloyd and the John Travolta, but I feel like you've got that one down. All right. That's all that matters. All right. So that's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and that is this episode of Awesome Movie Year. You can check us out online and on social media. Why don't you do that, kids? I'm at Awesome Movie Year. You're at Awesome Movie Year. We're all at Awesome Movie Year. AwesomeMovieYear.com. Awesome Movie Year on Instagram, on Facebook. Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter. I'm Jason Harris Comedy or Jay Harris Comedy and all the socials. Don't forget, eat this comedy. And of course, you're already following me on Go for Jason, but just hit that follow button again. On Letterboxd. On Letterboxd. Yes, I, I too am on Letterboxd at Signal Bleed, at Signal Bleed on Twitter. Some old stuff for me at joshbellhateseverything.com, also at joshbellhateseverything on Facebook. And listen to our producer, David Rosen's awesome podcast, Piecing It Together. Check out Piecing It Together wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at PiecingPod and join our own little mental institution, the Popcorn and Puzzle Pieces Facebook group. Yeah, quite an assortment of uh, personalities there in that group, <laughs> I think. Yes. Jason, what are we doing in our next episode? Josh, uh, I don't like to let Dave talk a lot, but I feel like I should let him hear since it is his pick. Dave, you got four seconds. <laughs> I don't know if I can fit it in. Uh, Do it, Dave. It's my turn. No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm not going to sit here and tell you guys that it's the best movie in the world, but it's going to be a fun one to talk about. We're doing the black exploitation classic Dolomite. So tune in next time for Dolomite, and thanks for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Thank you for listening to Awesome Movie Year. Make sure to follow Awesome Movie Year on Facebook, at Awesome Movie Pod on Twitter, and at Awesome Movie Year on Instagram. And if you like the show, review us and rate us with five stars on Apple Podcasts. An All Points West production, produced by David Rosen in Las Vegas.